Hello and welcome to COS Live. You can watch the original video broadcast live on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's COS Live. Well, hello, COS supporters, and welcome back to another edition of COS Live. My name is Andrew Loosh. No longer Andrew Woodruff. I took on my stepfather's last name, and he adopted me as his son. So I will now be Andrew Loosh. Anyway, I'm joined by uh, Rita Peters, who is my co-host. She's also the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs. Rita, how are you doing today? I'm great. I am excited to be back with a new program today after you and I had the week off last mm -hmm. week. And hey, I'd love to know who's watching today. Like, where are our viewers from today? I'd love to know, too. You can drop us a comment um, and let us know where you are tuning in from. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also love to know, why do you support Convention of States? Why do you support Article 5? Drop us a comment below. Um, today, we have a really great program lined up for you. A quick note, though, for next week, uh, we are going to be giving you live coverage from a town hall event in Montana featuring Rick Santorum and uh, Article 5 scholar um, Robert Nadelson. So stay tuned for more info on that event on Monday night. Also, we are expecting to give you live coverage from the National Day of Prayer event this Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. CUS President Mark Meckler will be participating in this special event from the National Monument to the Forefathers in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So in a previous episode, Rita and I broke down the best citizen testimony in favor of our Article 5 Convention of States. Uh, today, we're going to do things a little different. We're going to give you the best of the worst in opposition to our organization, to our Article 5 resolution. It's going to be a whirlwind. Uh, it's going to be painful, maybe a bit nauseating, but we're going to work through it together. And um, we're going to demonstrate how the fringe left and the fringe right, or the far left and the fringe right, are so close in their opposition to us. And we're going to show you that there are multiple organizations out there against us who are funded by none other than George Soros. Before we get to that, though, of course, we have our Article 5 Trivia Giveaway question with COS Vice President Mike Ruthenberg. Mike, over to you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Rita. I am always glad to be here today, especially. There's a lot going on. Of course, there's run up to a bunch of primary elections. We all have aspirations that things are going to be changing in this nation in this kind of midterm election. That's pretty interesting and exciting. I think we have a lot of optimism. Of course, there's so many people right now that are so relieved that we've passed four states this season. There's more to come. At least that's my prognostication. There's a lot going on. Well, as you guys know, well, first of all, let me introduce that I'm here to bring to you Article 5 Trivia and that is because you're probably here not only to get the scoop and the news of what's going on and learn a little bit more about what the heck we're doing, but also you probably want to win this shirt. And I really like wearing this shirt because right now I'm not a big fan of the Disney fiefdom. I've heard literally billions of dollars are going out of their coffers because they're trying to get involved in indoctrinating our children. I'm sure you're familiar with the story, but if you want to wear a shirt like this, stimulate that conversation and shame Disney, hopefully shame them into doing the right thing, then you can go to shopconventionofstates.com and get one of these shirts. Or 
you can answer our question correctly and you can win one in your size. So that's my hope for you is that you'll win this shirt. And if you don't, just go to shopconventionstates.com, look around, and hopefully you'll pick up a no mouse in this house shirt as well. So on to trivia. We have millions of supporters across the country. In today's episode, we're going to show you how some of the people who oppose COS, and we're going to show some, we're going to expose them. And then we're going to discuss why they oppose COS. I'm sure you probably already know. Um, they come, these opponents come from both the far left and the far right. It's crazy. They use the same talking points. It's amazing how politics can make strange bedfellows. And we're seeing it. We actually see people that we largely agree with getting in bed with people on the left to oppose COS. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Last week, Article 5 scholar, probably the best and most knowledgeable in the nation on Article 5, and professor Robert G. Nadelson put out an article on the subject identifying six key individuals, six of them from the 20th century, who are closely allied with the D.C. establishment. Their disinformation was then spread by two mainstream news sources. And my question to you is which two news sources were the ones that were mentioned that this disinformation was published in? So there's my question of the day. Again, which of the two news sources uh, helped spread this disinformation from these 20th century people? We certainly won't call them. Uh, scholars or anything, that's for sure. Anyway, I'll be back towards the end of the show and I'll give you the answer and I'm looking forward to it. Enjoy the show. I'm sure you'll get quite a bit out of it today. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. Well, for this first video, our old friend Publius Holda is back and she's testifying in this video before a South Carolina committee in 2020. Um, didn't work out too well for her because remember that earlier this year, South Carolina, South Carolina became the 19th state to successfully adopt our uh, Article 5 resolution. This is just a three-minute excerpt of a 30-minute-plus a speech that she gave. We're not going to force you to watch and endure this <laughs> entire speech, but here's just a clip of it. Claim that these problems can be fixed by amending our Constitution makes as much sense as saying that people that since people violate the Ten Commandments, God should amend the Ten Commandments. And state legislators invited by COS, and they showed they are constitutionally illiterate, didn't understand what they were doing, and were steered by persons of insidious views who were present at the simulated convention. So the claim that we can get amendments to rein in the power and jurisdiction of the federal government is false. There is another agenda. You can't stop that from happening at another convention. If we have a convention now, George Washington, James Madison, Ben Franklin, and Alexander Hamilton won't be there. Who will be there? Constitutionally illiterate people such as those who attended the simulated convention and persons of insidious views 
to steer them to a predetermined outcome, which is almost certainly a third constitution. New constitutions are already prepared. The Constitution for the New States of America is ratified by a national referendum. Whoever controls the voting machines will determine the outcome. The states are dissolved and replaced by regional governments answerable to the new, to the new national government. Under this Constitution, we are disarmed. Here's the Constitution for the new socialist republic in North America, 100 pages. The Constitution 2020 movement is backed by George Soros. He wants a new constitution in place by the year 2020. They are behind schedule. The North American Union. During 2005, George W. Bush met on his ranch with the PM, the Prime Minister of Canada, and the President of Mexico, and they sketched it out. This is the task force report on the North American Union by the Council on Foreign Relations. It provides for, among other horrors, setting up a parliament over the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Boy, Rita, I'm so... Boy, Rita, I'm so happy that we didn't make them watch the full 30 minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> Three minutes was enough. I think that in order to make sense of what she was saying, and certainly for to withstand the whole 30 minutes, you have to have your tinfoil hat on. Because <laughs> let me tell you, this is some crazy talk. And mm -hmm. I have to just say, um, the sing-song voice of... Joanna Scuteri, Joanna Martin, whatever her actual name is, it, it gets me every time. Like the sing-songy voice combined with the error that she is spewing out just drives me absolutely nuts. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a crack at just a few of the things she said. I was scribbling furiously with my pen. <laughs> um, okay, the Ten Commandments. I mean, the comparison to the Ten Commandments. No, I'm sorry. It doesn't work, Joanna. The Ten Commandments, we all know, were perfect and holy, written by God himself. The Constitution, pretty darn good. The best Constitution the world has ever known. But it is not wholly writ. It is not sacred. It was not written by God himself. And you know what? The framers knew that. That is why they themselves included Article 5, you know? So this idea that we're going to compare the Ten Commandments to the Constitution, I'm sorry, it, it just doesn't work. Okay, I have to take issue with her repeatedly calling us, you and I, Andrew, as well as the 5 million plus grassroots supporters of Convention of States across the nation, persons of insidious views. Oh. Hello? Where, like, what are, the, what are the insidious views she thinks we have? And where is her evidence that we hold those views that she is saying we have? There isn't any. It's just, again, it's just crazy talk. Um, she likes to remind everyone that George Washington would not be at an Article 5 Convention of the States. That is true. George Washington has passed away, sadly. He won't be there. 
But, you know, I want to point out that every time she draws upon this argument, every time she makes it sound like, you know, there's something evil about crafting amendments to the Constitution because it's somehow perfect and holy and sacred, she is really turning the founders' own views on their head. It's very clear that the founders, the drafters of the Constitution, understood very well that human nature is static over time. And part of human nature is, you know, we are naturally power hungry and greedy. Even George Washington was not perfect. And he knew that very well, as did his contemporaries. So, I don't, you know, I just don't buy this argument that because George Washington's not here, no one can ever, you know, do anything to improve the country and to um, reform our government again. I don't believe that. The founders certainly didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's um, one last one that you didn't cover. Um, uh, your analysis was really spot on, but the one she did invoke. George Soros claiming that um, Article 5 conventions are funded by Soros and that he wants an Article 5 convention, which I think is completely crazy. And this next video that we have is really going to be quite telling because um, we are bringing you the second video from Texas um, from an organization called Common Cause, which is a George Soros funded organization. And they are coming to this, uh, this, this committee hearing in Texas to testify against Article 5 and against Convention of States, which should be pretty telling to you. Why would George Soros be funding us, but then opposing us at the same time? That's kind of Yeah, this is going to be fun. So um, again, there's 250 leftist groups who oppose Convention of States, and they're all Soros-funded organizations, including Common Cause. Let's see what this person has to say. My name is Anthony Gutierrez. I represent uh, Common Cause Texas. We're a membership organization of about 26,000 in Texas. Uh, the state chapter of Common Cause, which has about 700,000 members nationally. Uh, we are uh, in opposition to SJR2. Um, I did submit written testimony, which I hope you all will take a look at. I'm going to struggle to fit this into two minutes, but uh, I'll do my best to hit the high points. Uh, uh, essentially, we feel like there are just too many unanswered questions about how an Article 5 convention would work. Uh, I feel like we've heard a lot of uh, testimony today about the political goals of what people would like to see out of the convention. Uh, Our issue is really more with the process. Uh, I think there is a reason why in our country's history we've never had an Article 5 convention, uh, despite the fact that there have been uh, over 400 applications from states uh, in our history. Uh, The times we've gotten close, in 1969 we came within uh, one application of uh, Article 5 convention, and uh, when that 33rd was filed and got very close to the 34th, it would hit the threshold. Uh, several states rescinded their applications uh, for the concerns that uh, I think we're expressing today, uh, which is really that there are just uh, too many questions in the process. Um, who defines the scope of the convention? You know, is it the states? Uh, I think the founders made clear it shouldn't be Congress, but uh, can the states just define it to a single issue? Um, and once convened, can they expand it to as many issues as they like? Uh, how does the delegate selection process work? Uh, what are the, the rules for voting? Uh, and, and maybe the most important of all of them is, you know, if delegates within the convention are not able to agree on some of these issues, uh, who settles these disputes? Uh, again, it's probably not Congress, but do disputes go to the Supreme Court? 
Uh, does the executive branch have any role in this at all? Uh, if it goes to the Supreme Court and in the likely possibility with this Supreme Court that we currently have that there's a, uh, a deadlock, what happens then? Uh, and, and you know, we just, these questions are not explicitly answered in the Constitution and uh, looking at historical precedent, uh, the only thing we really have to look at is the past Constitutional Convention uh, in our nation's history where in 1787 uh, that convention went far beyond the scope of what it was intended to do and uh, did not revise the Articles of Confederation but, uh, you know, basically wrote us a new Constitution which we're all very happy with but that is not what they convened to do in the first place and they also didn't uh, uh, adhere to the ratification uh, threshold that they had originally convened under. Uh, so we, we, we urge you please vote uh, against uh, SJR2. Wow, Rita. Well, this one wasn't quite like the last video with the tinfoil hats and the new constitutions and all kinds of conspiracy theory, but there's certainly a whole bunch of errors in what he was talking about. And I don't know, because he's speaking so um, he speaks well and pre is, presents himself well it could be assumed that what he's saying is correct but Rita I know that that's not true can you break down exactly all of the things that he got wrong sure and yeah you're absolutely right we've gone from crazy to just misinformed or uninformed and I want to start though by backing up to what you were saying before we heard his testimony so he was representing common cause, which is, you know, George Soros funded organization. And he's there, you know, very plainly representing common cause saying we're opposed to this. And, you know, as we know, Andrew, over 230 radical leftist organizations, including common cause have put out public written statements saying we oppose the article five efforts. And yet, you know, we just heard Joanna and we hear lots of other people all the time saying that Convention of States is funded by George Soros and that George Soros and the radical left are the ones behind it. I really don't understand how this lie persists. And it's one of the most frustrating things that we deal with at Convention of States. OK, getting to his testimony. Well, he, he suggests that the reason we've never had an Article 5 convention to propose amendments in American history yet is because we don't understand how the process will work. So when we start to get close, then states start rescinding their applications. I don't think that's right at all. The, the technical reason we haven't had an Article 5 convention yet in America is because 34 states have never at the same time been in agreement as to the scope or topic of amendment proposals that they wanted the convention to consider. So it does matter how the states define the agenda or the topic for amendment proposals that will be considered at the convention. And for those who are watching who might be new to Convention of States, the applications that are that 19 states have already passed that are advocated by the Convention of States um, call for an Article 5 convention to propose amendments on three topics. That's it. Imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and setting term limits for federal officials and members of Congress. So until 34 states pass applications for a convention on those specific topics, we won't have a convention for that purpose. It takes 34 to get to convention. That's why we haven't had one yet. 
Now, I want to say, you know, just in, as a general response to this gentleman's testimony, there, there, lots of people have questions about the process, but the questions have answers. And he was just dead wrong in suggesting that the only precedent for us to look to was the 1787 Constitutional Convention. That was an interstate convention, but there have been many more interstate conventions in American history, over 30, at least approaching 40 interstate conventions, and they always operated basically the same way. The convention itself sets the rules when the state delegations get there to meet. They set the, the operating rules. They operate very similarly to a state legislature in the way it operates. We know that conventions operate on a one state, one vote basis. So no matter how many commissioners each state sends, every state gets one vote. And so we do have these answers. It's wrong to suggest that just it's going to be a free for all and nobody um, knows how it's going to work. That is incorrect. Mm -hmm. There was one other thing that he said, too. He talked about the 1787 convention going beyond the scope of, of what it was called to do. I mean, that's that's surely not true as well. Right, Rita? Yeah, thanks for reminding me about that one. We hear that over and over so many times that it's almost just just goes <laughs> right over my head these days. But yeah, that's absolutely untrue. And it is a common myth that has been perpetuated mostly by scholars on the left in past decades that you know, the Constitutional Convention of 1787 was a runaway that people like George Washington and, you know, James Madison went there and were dishonorable and disobeyed the charge that their states gave them. And it's just not true. It has been completely disproven by those who have taken the time to actually read the instructions that the states gave to the delegates who represented them at convention. So, yeah, it's another myth that has been completely disproven. Mm. All right. So we went from the fringe right to the far left, kind of tin pot or not tin pot, but uh, tin foil hat is something that's more just or, uh, misinformation. Uh, now we're going to go to uh, West Virginia, which was the 18th state to pass our application. But before that happened, the ACLU was trying to stop us. Check out this full testimony. Good morning. My name is Lori Stark, and I'm the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia. I am here today on behalf of Eli Baumwell, who is the advocacy director for the ACLU of West Virginia. He is unfortunately able to be here today. I will be presenting his comments. I am here to speak in opposition of House Concurrent Resolution 31. The ACLU is one of the oldest, largest, and most experienced organizations dedicated to defending the Constitution and the rights contained therein. I know I take great pride in saying that no other non-governmental entity has been in front of the United States Supreme Court as much as the ACLU. Suffice to say, we have a pretty good idea of what we're talking about. We also recognize that Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution does indeed leave the door open to amendments by conventions of the states. However, after more than two and a quarter centuries of declining to use that option, we believe it exceedingly imprudent to open this Pandora's box at this juncture. 
I hope that all of you in attendance today have heard the parade of horribles that could result from this. But in case you haven't, let me briefly spell out some of the concerns. This method of amending the Constitution has no rules. There is no legal precedent. Proponents will point to the state constitutional conventions. And indeed, we can hope that Article 5 we can hope that an Article 5 convention might follow those precedents, but there is no legal obligation to do so. As I and other people have pointed out before, the closest direct analogous situation resulted in scrapping the Articles of Confederation for the Constitution we have now. Every step of the process would wind up in years of expensive and bitter litigation. Just think, there would be disputes about the time, place, and manner of a convention, about the delegations and voting, about the constraints, about ratification. Beyond that, it would not be hard to imagine significant changes to the Constitution that could dramatically alter the legal framework for this country hanging out in the ether while states feud bitterly over ratification. I know that some of you will also point to the language of the resolution asking for a one state, one vote model and say that the Bill of Rights cannot be amended, that states can recall their delegates and that ratification will take place through the legislatures. These are all friendly suggestions, but I can tell you, friendly suggestions are not always adopted. I could continue with the flaws in the plans. I could tell you a dozen better ways to address the grievances with the federal government, starting with ending gerrymandering by adopting a nonpartisan redistricting process. But our time this morning is limited. So instead, I want to address one final claim that I hear, that a convention will never actually be held. As the calls get close, it will spur the government into action. That's a dangerous game of chicken, my friends. You're surrounding your house with dynamite, hoping to scare the neighbors into being more polite. And I shouldn't have to tell you, that's a bad idea. Thank you. Okay, wait a minute, Rita, wait a minute. She said that her and her colleagues at the ACLU are constitutional scholars, but then she says Article 5 is a Pandora's box and we don't know what's gonna happen. How can you be a scholar of the Constitution, which has Article 5 in it, and then say you don't know what's going to happen? How, hey, how can you square that circle? Well, wait, Andrew. I think you missed a couple of things there. You missed the part where she said, you should trust us because we're the ACLU and we know what we're talking about. So I don't think you're supposed to question her testimony. <laughs> also... Uh, on my part. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I was really encouraged to learn that, you know, she does agree that Article 5 does provide for a convention method of proposing amendments to the Constitution. Like she said, yes, it does. Like she she was very <laughs> affirming in that. So, you know, maybe there's some hope. Maybe she really is a constitutional scholar. I don't know. Um, I want to point out before I say any more about her specific testimony that I think, if I recall correctly, the ACLU was the only opponent at that public hearing in West Virginia. We had loads of citizens, supporters, you know, the grassroots, the people of West Virginia turned out in droves to support this resolution. The only opponent that I recall was that one that you just saw for the ACLU. Um, so I want to just talk about, you know, she's again making this case that this is a Pandora's box. There's no, there are no rules and no precedent. 
Well, you know, this goes to just what you were saying, Andrew. It's a little bit concerning that someone who calls herself a constitutional scholar would be saying this because, in fact, as we said before, there are many precedents for interstate conventions and how they work. And if she had been aware of or maybe even read some of the many, many court cases that discuss Article 5, the amendment proposal and ratification process in general, and the principles that the court will apply, um, she would know that the court routinely looks to history and the drafting and intention of the, of the framers when they deal with Article 5 questions. So I don't think she's looked at those cases or read about past interstate conventions in American history, or I think she would have known that. Mm -hmm. Well, we have one final video, Rita, we've saved the worst for last or the oh, best dear. for last. I'm not sure how that goes uh, in this case, uh, but a, a who's who of opponents wouldn't be complete without having Robert Brown, oh, yes. uh, representative of the John Birch Society. We have a three minute excerpt of his testimony before a South Carolina committee. We're back again, reviewing the uh, Convention of States application yet again. It's notable that every legislature prior that has reviewed it has rejected it and for good reason in fact it was just over a year ago that i was able to be there in person and i followed mr meckler as as my testimony right after his and in my testimony i went through point by point everything he claimed and refuted it i'm not going to spend as much time on that today but i do want to make a few key points in the opening testimony it was pointed out that this is the only solution our founders gave us and that's blatantly untrue the founders went into great detail. If you, if you are a fan of the Federalist Papers, for example, the founders clearly told us what to do when the federal government oversteps their bounds. And that's what those Federalist Papers are devoted to. And guess what never comes up in those? Changing the Constitution. In fact, in Federalist 48 and 49, Madison addresses that question as well. Should we use the Article 5 process for reining in those who don't obey the Constitution. He clearly says no in Federalist 48 and 49. The founders told us what to do. And in fact, uh, we the people and we the states already have the power to rein them in. I had an interesting conversation just over a year ago with the Lieutenant Governor of Arkansas. As a former Congressman, his name is Tim Griffin. As a former Congressman, he told me the most interesting thing he learned as being a member of Congress, was that to his surprise, Congress is actually very responsive to the will of their constituents, which he had never suspected. And he took as an example the balanced budget uh, movement. He says, of course, the balanced budget movement has large popular support across the country, so why don't they pass a balanced budget? And his answer is, yes, the people want a balanced budget, but they don't want it more then they want their federal programs, their government handouts, and so on. He said the states are the same way. They don't want it more than they want their federal funding. The moment that changes, and that becomes top priority for the American people, and Congress will champion that cause, and not before. I ask you, would your own state right now entertain a motion to reject all federal funding in order to help balance the budget? 
so far I haven't seen any support for that type of an effort in any state. Because we the people and we the states are not desiring a balanced budget more than all the other things the federal government does for us. There are a number of things that are promoted regarding the Article 5 Convention that are blatantly false. One of which is history. I'm going to just briefly mention, last, last time I was there, I went into much more detail on this. I'll send an email with more detail as well, because I feel like evidence and references are essential very well right now. But in uh, 1787, the precedent set by that convention was the precedent of a runaway convention. And as proof of that, all you have to do is look to Madison's notes from the 1787 convention, because it repeatedly came up in that convention. Do we actually have the authority to be proposing these massive sweeping changes to create an entirely new constitution? And the answer repeatedly came back as one of two. There were those who said, we don't have this power and we should not proceed until we get the authority from our states. And the other answer that came back was, you're right, we probably don't have the authority, but it is essential that we proceed anyway. Not a single delegate in the 1787 convention made the claim that Mark Meckler frequently makes, or they have full authority to make any changes they felt necessary. No one believed that, not a single delegate. They moved forward knowing full well they were acting beyond the scope of power that they were given by their states. This is essential because this is the only precedent we have for a national constitution amending convention. All right, Rita, here we go again. <laughs> With all, I mean, I just can't even make it stop. I, I know, right? Just make it stop. <laughs> yeah. Three minutes of my life right there. Just listening to that. If only you could, you know, really and truly make a strong opposition to anything just by getting in front of people and citing random Federalist papers. <laughs> Yeah. Right, and like, then he didn't even break them down. He just said, he just cited the Federalist Papers. He didn't say, oh, they said yeah. this and that. He just cited them. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I want to say, like, I was trying to glean from that three-minute clip, like, a common problem with his testimony. And I would say, if there's a common thread that runs through his testimony, it's that he just mischaracterizes everything, mm -hmm. you know. And I want to start with him saying, you know, he. I have to, I have to observe that he seems to have this fixation on Mark Meckler, but yeah. like he's always talking about, he's very concerned about how he does in relation <laughs> to Mark Meckler, which is just hysterical to me. But one of the things we heard him say is, you know, that at a previous um, committee hearing, he, he got to go after Mark Meckler and he refuted every claim that Mark Meckler made. Well, I'm sorry, but that's one of those things that you don't get to decide for yourself. You know, like you just don't get to decide if you successfully refuted every claim. That's for the other people there to decide. And I'm sorry, but no, you didn't. You know, you need and to, to your point. That. 
this was South Carolina. So obviously the people you didn't refute because we passed in South Carolina. Obviously, you know, I, I hate to let him in on that little secret, but he did not refute all the, all the arguments, but that is the same thing kind of thing that he does in talking about the Federalist Papers and James Madison. Like he's just, he's mi mischaracterizing things. He thinks something happened that didn't happen. One example is him talking about James Madison being, you know, so opposed to the use of the Article 5 convention process. He's completely mischaracterizing it. What Madison is talking about in those historical documents is that Madison was opposed to this push that was going on at that time to hold a second general interstate convention to write a new constitution in place of the one that had just been drafted. That's what he was opposed to. He was not opposed to the states holding an Article 5 convention to propose amendments. Absolutely not. And, you know, I want to point out that the founding generation was, was great with the Article 5 process. They, you know, immediately started filing applications for an Article 5 convention to propose amendments in order to get the Bill of Rights. Now, they didn't end up needing to have that convention because Congress acted. It saw that the states meant business. It knew that the Bill of Rights was needed. So Congress went ahead and proposed the Bill of Rights. But that is proof that the founding generation was, you know, not only did they adopt a constitution that had the Article 5 convention process in it, they started right away trying to use that process because it was a good and safe process. And then I want to give one example, too, where um, because Robert Brown, one of the things he says is that, you know, the Article 5 process is not appropriate for restraining the power of the federal government or its scope and jurisdiction. Well, that is just immediately refuted when you look at the 11th Amendment. The 11th Amendment was adopted because the Supreme Court ruled in Chisholm versus Georgia that the federal courts had more jurisdiction than they were actually meant to have or than the people wanted them to have. So what was the solution? The 11th Amendment. They adopted it and it worked. So Robert Brown, that's what you call refuting something. Mm -hmm. You know, what I got from that, Rita, is that Robert Brown, he likes to take the text out of context. And when you take the text out of that, you're just left with a con. And that's what he likes to do. And that just speaks to the whole theory of a con-con or a constitutional convention. They're taking the text out of context, and they're trying to twist the Founding Fathers' words, and they're trying to twist the actual meaning of the Constitution. I'm so glad that we have an actual scholar who, um, who looks with a careful eye at these various uh, precedents that were set by the Founding Fathers and what the text actually says in Article 5 and in the Constitution. Rita, any final comments before we before we sign off? Um, I don't think so. I just I really enjoyed that. Although it is painful, it's nice to get a chance to respond to some of the crazy that we regularly hear. And I just want to encourage our listeners when you hear people making some of these opposition arguments to convention of states, just remember that the questions, the objections, they do have answers. And 
We're happy to help you find the answers. Go to conventionofstates.com, get in touch with us, and we will point you in the right direction. All right. With that, we are going to go over to Mike Ruthenberg, who has the answer for our Article 5 trivia giveaway. Mike, over to you. Thanks for coming back. I hope you guys are already have the answer to our trivia question. I hope you, more importantly, enjoyed the show today. There's so much great information talking about all the disinformation that happens. And one of the things that, or the question, oh, first of all, the prize. Everyone wants to know what the prize is. Is a no mouse in this house t-shirt. No more Disney is what we're saying because we really do want to shame Disney into getting out of gender politics, uh, education, want to get them back into the entertainment business where they were known and loved and had their incredible rise throughout this nation. And if you don't win the shirt, just go to shopconventionestates.com and pick one up and you'll start the conversations and you'll help people to understand why it's important for us to focus on the people that tend to agree with our values and not build up the people that have sometimes wicked views of what our values should be. Anyway, going back to our question, the question was, uh, of course, last week, Article 5 scholar and Professor Robert Nadelson, Rob G. Nadelson, put out an article on the subject identifying six key individuals from the 20th century who were closely allied with the D.C. establishment. Their disinformation was spread by two mainstream news sources. The question was, what are those two sources? The answer, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Probably not your favorite publications, are they? And I'm sure you know who owns the Washington Post. That's a Bezos publication, I guess you would call it. And if you guess that, you would be right. According to Rob Nadelson, the principal talking points exploited today by both right and left wing opponents were invented, remember invented is the right word, by 20th century prominent establishment liberals. And those talking points were disseminated by this lib these liberal media sources, New York Times and Washington Post. Most of this credit for the invention goes to six individuals writing in, ac writing in academic journals. Charles Black, a highly influential and very liberal Yale law professor. He started calling an Article 5 convention a constitutional convention. Of course, that is a popularized misconception, and they falsely claimed Congress could regulate it. Gerald Gunther, who clerked for Chief Justice Earl Warren during the court's most activist phase. Another one, Walter Dellinger, who clerked for liberal activist Justice Hugo Black during the same phase. He later became a high-ranking official in the Clinton administration. William Swindler, a personal friend of Chief Justice Warren Berger, who presided over the Roe v. Wade decision. Lawrence Tribe, who clerked for Justice Potter Stewart during the same period and was also allied with the Kennedys. Arthur Goldberg, another member of the Kennedy clan, who served as JFK's Secretary of Labor and briefly on the Supreme Court. Anyway, if you want the full scoop of what happened here, you can go to the link, click on the link that 
I think producer G has it up there. It talks about Professor Nadelson exposes origins of anti-convention talking points right on our website and read more. But for now, that's our story. That's our trivia for the day. And now back to you, Andrew and Rita. Thanks, Mike. We do this show every week because we love America. What we don't love is what's being done to her by swamp monsters in D.C. The founders knew this would happen, and they gave us a plan to fight back. In Article 5 of the Constitution, they inserted a fail-safe, a convention of states for proposing amendments to rein in federal tyranny. We're organizing where we, the people, have the advantage in the states. The best part? Neither the president nor Congress can do a thing to stop us. The states are agreeing in advance to discuss amendment proposals on three topics, term limits, fiscal restraints on Congress, and, term and limits on the size and scope of the federal government. This is truly a solution as big as our nation's problems. Join Governor Ron DeSantis, Ben Shapiro, Senator Rand Paul, Mark Levin, and millions of liberty-loving patriots by signing and sharing the petition at conventionofstates.com. But don't stop there. Click on the Take Action tab to help us save America. Also, follow us on Rumble, MeWe, Facebook, Twitter, Parler, Instagram, Getter, and TikTok. Wherever you're getting your social media buzz, make sure that you're following us, liking our content, and sharing our contact our uh, content, we need to get this message out about Article 5 and how it can save the nation. Listen to this program and other historic legacy content on our podcast. Search Convention of States wherever you podcast from. You can text START to 54555 if you'd like to uh, bypass big tech and get important COS messages and updates. Check out the battle cry with COS President Mark Meckler Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern time for another edition of COS Live. But remember, politics is not a spectator sport. You really want to win. You really want to change your country. It's time for you to get in the game. Your country needs you. This has been the podcast version of COS Live. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.